So one of the most concerning trends about, well, a little bit of my generation, but a lot of your generation is that you're moving toward the direction of what are called the nuns, the N-O-N-E-S. People who don't identify as anything in particular, but really a hodgepodge of everything. In fact, the trends are starting to show that this is becoming an increasingly larger proportion of the United States, and it's probably across the, gro across the globe. Nuns uh, say religious, religious institutions protection, protect and strengthen morality. Uh, some of them believe that. Uh, say abortion should be legal, 72% for those who are religious nuns. If you're a nun, someone who doesn't believe in any particular organized religion, uh, you say you believe in a God or some kind of universal spirit. So I guess you wouldn't say that you're nothing in particular. It's more of an agnostic leaning, someone who doesn't believe that there's no God necessarily, but also someone who wouldn't say that they think that God is displayed in any one of the major religions. These guys are also in favor of same-sex marriage and, and a lot of other things that go along with that. One-third of Americans under age 30 have no religious affiliation. 33%, that means you throw a rock uh, at three people. <laughs> Don't throw rocks at people, but if you did, uh, one of those people you throw a rock at would be someone who considered themselves a nun. The problem with that is that if you take all of this stuff to its logical consequence, that means anything goes. If there is nothing that we can cling to or nothing we can believe upon, that means what you believe and what I believe is really all subject to our whims and to our fancies and to whatever the prevailing cultural zeitgeist is. So, for instance, if I believed that uh, Jews were despicable and should be annihilated, you couldn't tell me no because that's my belief. And you have nothing on your side that you could tell me, well, you shouldn't believe that, Pastor Otto. Why not? It's your belief against my belief. Uh, if you're a nun, that means you have to step back from everything everyone teaches and say, well, hey, whatever's good for you is good for you, and what's good for me is good for me, but let's not all throw rocks at each other. Let's all be accepting and kind. So if you want to believe, like uh, Richard Dawkins, that aliens seeded the planet and resulted in what we have today, well, then that's fine for you to believe. I mean, that's, that's your belief. That's your religion in many respects. Now, if you think crystals are going to help you be successful in your school or your dating life, hey, good for you. As long as it doesn't hurt me and my family, that's fine. Or if you're a New Age mystic and you believe that you can cast spells upon people and you can use uh, a New Age kind of witchcraft to influence the world around you, maybe by the power of positive thinking or you know, law of attraction, if you believe that, hey, fine for you. Anything goes as long as you don't force it upon me and it doesn't hurt me. In fact, as long as you're not a Christian, it's fine. Well, this obviously is a problem because what this does is create cafeteria-style religion. And that means anything you want becomes the order of the day. And here's the point of tonight's sermon. Essentially, you know, the, the Bible teaches us that Jesus makes exclusivistic claims that means apart from him, none of us have any chance of connecting with what we really need. We need forgiveness from God. We're estranged from him, and Jesus alone offers a solution that we desperately need to apply. Unless and until we draw near to God through Christ, our faith will not be resilient. Now remember, the whole purpose of Hebrews is to keep you running the race that's before you. The author is the preacher. The book of Hebrews is a sermon. And in this sermon, the preacher's concerned that you stay faithful to Christ no matter what the cost is. He's essentially trying to help you understand in this passage, which is basically the, the main point of the book, Jesus is your great high priest, just as we sang. 
He's our great high priest and our spotless sacrifice. And you must, must, must find your spirituality and fulfillment through him. No other options are safe, viable, or in any way possible for you. Jesus alone is your option. To be a nun or to be anything else, really, any other religion, is futile, fruitless, and ultimately going to undermine everything you seek to accomplish in your life. Remember last week, we were looking at Hebrews chapter 4, where we saw that God's word, in many respects, poses a threat to us. The word of God is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces to the divisions of joints, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. No creature is hidden from his sight, God's sight through his word, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Now, last week we ended on kind of a heavy note. The word is threatening. God is threatening because he's holy and you and I are not. And therefore, for us to, uh, to, for us to get into his presence poses something of a threat to us. Now, you would expect the, the preacher, again, Hebrews is written, as a sermon, you'd expect the preacher to say, so be very careful and don't come near to God. He's holy and you're not. Stay away. But he doesn't do this. In fact, in the text that we're going to finish here in chapter 4, we're also going to look at chapter 5, he's actually going to tell you the opposite. He's not going to say, stay away, danger, high voltage. He's actually going to say, no, come in, draw near. Take a look at Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. He says this, since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, and he identifies who he's talking about, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. This is language that you should be familiar with because he's already said this a few times. He says, we don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with us in our weakness, but we have a high priest who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence, as we sang in the song, with confidence we now draw nigh. Let us with confidence then draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Okay, there's a little bit of theology that we need to unpack here. Remember, the whole point of this sermon is to say no alternatives. Jesus alone is the one who draws us to God. He's the only avenue by which you can find spirituality, lasting satisfaction. But there's an important factor in this that we've kind of been dancing around. I'm going to state it more explicitly tonight. Regardless of your personal satisfaction, the one thing Jesus offers that you and I desperately need is salvation. We are estranged from God and we need Jesus to rectify that broken relationship. The first verse that we're looking at tonight in verse 14 says, Jesus is a great high priest. Now, if you read your Bible, and if you're reading your Bible right now with Compass in our DBR, you'll notice that we're in the book of the Bible that starts detailing the nature of the priests and the high priest. The high priest was a position that God gave to Aaron first. Aaron was from the tribe of Levi. So you might know of the Aaronic priesthood or the Levitical priesthood. They're both kind of referring to the same thing. Aaron was the first high priest. He's the brother of Moses. And he's the one that God called to be the one who would oversee the sacrificial system that God instituted. And so the great high priest had special clothing. He had special sacrifices that were to be offered for him. He was to be the one who would go between Israel and God to offer sacrifices on their behalf. Now the priest functioned with a group of leaders below him. The, the, great, uh, the high priest had a, low, a layer of leaders called priests. 
And Aaron's sons were the first priests who would serve under his leadership. And you remember two of those priests, Nadab and Abihu, when they were offering something to God, how did God respond to them? Struck them down immediately because they were offering sacrifices to God that were unacceptable. The sacrifices that these priests had to offer to God had to be precise and perfect. If you're reading through the book of Leviticus, it's kind of difficult reading because it's like, oh, what is happening here? This is a, a fellowship offering and a sin offering and a guilt offering. If you're not guilty, you still have to offer something. It gets really complicated pretty fast. But the priests were to be the pros. They were to be the ones who understood, okay, oh, you, you sin in this way? Well, now you offer this. If you sin in that way, now you offer that. Oh, you're happy. You want to offer a sacrifice to God? Here's what that sacrifice should look like. So these priests were the workers. They were the ones who would receive the offering and do the work. The high priest was the one who would intercede on behalf of all of Israel between God and them. He would talk to God on their behalf. God would talk to him uh, and, and, and execution of talking to them on his behalf. Uh, and so the priest was a, a high priest was a really special function. He wore a breastplate with, uh, with 12 stones on it that were to remind him of who he represented, the 12, sons of, uh, 12 tribes of Israel. He had colors and, and a turban and all these things that ornamented himself in order to describe his high priestly position. Now, this person also, if you remember, the tabernacle was the, uh, the mobile temple that Israel would carry along the, with themselves through the desert. They would tear it down and set it back up. This mobile temple was called the tabernacle. It was a tent where God would manifest his presence. In this verse that we just read, you said that you saw that Jesus is the great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Now, we're going to come back to that in a second, but here's what you need to know. This image that you're looking at, the tabernacle, is a representation of what heaven was to, was to look like. This is a depiction of heaven. And so you have God's concentrated presence in the tent, and the only person who could go into the holiest place, that place right behind that second curtain on the inside, the only person who could go in that sacred spot was the high priest. And he could only go there once a year. And he could only go there on a certain day of the year called the Day of day of Atonement, very good, or Yom Kippur. So uh, that's in Leviticus 16, which you're going to get to soon if you're doing the DVR, and I highly recommend that you do. Uh, fast forward a few years, Israel, uh, the people of Israel would build a temple, and that temple signified much of the same. This was not mobile, this was a permanent structure, but it had very similar features. It would have a holy of holies, where the high priest would go once a year to offer sacrifices on behalf of the people of Israel. Now, if you remember, the high priest during the, holy of, uh, during the uh, Yom Kippur would offer uh, two sacrifices. One would be uh, a sacrifice for Israel, that would, his head would be cut off, his neck would be slit, and that goat would, would shed blood. And there was another goat. Remember what happened to that goat? We called that goat the scapegoat. What did that goat do? That goat would have his hand, uh, there would be hands laid on that goat, and they'd send him into the wilderness. Bah! Send him out in the wilderness. And that goat was signifying the fact that God was carrying their sins away and sending him off into the wilderness. And of course, that goat would like, likely be torn up by wild animals. One goat shedding his blood for the people, the other goat expiating the sin, carrying it off into the distance, as it were. And that was the job of the high priest. His job was to, again, sacrifice on behalf of the people. He managed the sacrificial system. He was the one responsible to make sure all these things happen. Okay. Enter Jesus. He is called not just a high priest. He is the great high priest. He is the mega high priest. And when we use the word great, we say, oh, that's, I love that food. That was great. Uh, that, that salsa was great. 
uh, whatever, we use it in ways that probably kind of dull down the, the meaning of this phrase here. Now, when you think about the word great in conjunction to Jesus as high priest, you've got to think about heaviness, weightiness, significance, importance. Uh, it, it signifies something more than what we typically use it in the English language. So great, mega. Jesus is the mega, the ultimate, the supreme high priest. And what did he do as high priest? He passed through the heavens. Now, when we think about that, I, I need you to understand, uh, jot down this reference. I think I have it in your small group notes. Hebrews 9.24. Hebrews 9.24. It says this, For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, not the tabernacle, not the temple, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. So in this first verse in verse 14, when it says Jesus passed through the heavens, it's like he went into the Holy of Holies, not in the temple or tabernacle, but in the real one. He intercedes for us, not in the copy, but in the reality. And so when we think about Jesus as the great high priest, this is a massive statement. This is one of the most important realities in Scripture for us to understand. The whole book of Hebrews really revolves around this theme of Jesus as your great high priest. To understand this, you must understand the Levitical priesthood. So Jesus is our great high priest. The high priest was the mediator between God and men, Israel and, and God. Jesus now enters as our great high priest, not only between Israel and God, but us and God. Jesus has passed through the heavens. He's not just a regular man. He's a son of God. And therefore, the author of Hebrews, the preacher says, hold fast your confession. Hold fast. Don't depart from Christ. There's no other options. Essentially, if the preacher is saying, look, if you're thinking about leaving Jesus because it would be easier apart from him, let me encourage you by telling you there's not another option. Jesus is the great high priest. He's your only mediator, and there's no other options available for you. Hold fast your confession. Well, what am I confessing? Jesus is the Christ. He's the Son of God. I have no other hope but him. That's our confession. And, and not only this, the high priest was meant to be above reproach. He was meant to be a cut above of every other Israelite. And it says here, no, we don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize because this high priest is a man. He's the God-man. So he knows our weakness. He knows our frailty, not in the sinful sense, but he knows what it is to be human. He's been, uh, in every respect, tempted as we are. Let me clarify that really quickly here. To say Jesus has been tempted in every respect does not mean he experienced every single temptation you and I have. Uh, all kinds of temptations Jesus experienced. Enough to categorically say he gets it. He understands what it is to be tempted in all the various ways that you and I are tempted. Uh, he wasn't tempted in every single detailed sin that you might be tempted to sin in. But he was tempted in all ways, in all respects, as it says here. And yet, in every single situation, Jesus never gave in to that temptation. Therefore, let us not run away from God, not uh, depart from him. Let us instead draw near to this throne of grace. One of the things I love, one of my old teachers would say this, uh, the throne of grace is a throne of grace, but never forget, it's still a throne. Jesus is king, and he ushers us into the presence of his Father by saying, come into the throne of grace, come to it. And here's what happens when you come to that throne. You get mercy, you find grace, exactly what you need in time of need. If last week's sermon left you feeling a bit shaky, like, man, I'm not sure I can do this Christianity thing. It's so hard. You know, God is scary and he's threatening. He's essentially saying, look, God can be scary in his holiness, but come near. Jesus made a way for you to draw near to him and to find mercy, forgiveness of sin, and grace, faith to keep you going when it's going hard. 
Trust Jesus Christ to be everything you need. He's your only security. He's your only mediation. Let Jesus be the one who draws you near. In fact, as the sermon title says, draw near through him. That's our only avenue. That's our only option. I like the analogy of a gas pump. When you go to Shell and you spend $4,000 for a half tank, <laughs> there's some stickers that say, I did that. You ever see those stickers? Those are really funny. I won't mention who's, who's on that sticker, but you know. When you spend $4,000 for your half tank of gas, uh, I don't know about you, but sometimes I get, you know, <laughs> gas tank anxiety. I'm like, I, I never really let it go below half tank. That's my thing. I, I've always feel like, you know what, if there's a disaster, I like to have at least three quarters tank always. <laughs> when it hits the half tank, I start getting nervous. Uh, so I'll go and I'll kind of, I'll fill up. I just keep it full because I want to be ready for a disaster. And I want to have a car. Hopefully there's roads. With my, two, with my four cylinder Honda, I'm going to make it happen. <laughs> Whole tank for a Honda is like, like a thousand miles. But anyway, gas tank. You and I have these spiritual gas tanks that tend to leak. And the reality is we need to draw near to God in order to receive the things that we need from Him. We leak, we run low, and therefore we need to top off. We need to fill up. Which is why I like this concept of drawing near to God. Coming near to Him, even though He can be scary, He's approachable, He wants you to draw strength from His account. Point number one, let's draw strength from Jesus. Or I put it, draw from Jesus' strength. Same difference. Draw from Jesus' strength. He's not scary. He's inviting. He doesn't want you to run. He wants you to run too. You have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God. Three implications. You can draw strength, draw from Jesus' strength, first of all, by trusting his finished work. If you can recognize, young person, that Jesus paid it all, as the song says, that means there's nothing you contribute to God's salvation. If you ever struggle with knowing if you're right with God, that's because you're looking at you and not at Him. If you ever struggle with feeling weak in your faith, thinking that God doesn't care about you, God doesn't love you, or God somehow still has things against you, you're not trusting Jesus' finished work. Most of your hesitation and your feelings of acceptance before God are because you're looking at you and not at Jesus. For every one look you take at yourself, take 10 looks at Jesus. If you want to be strong in Christ, Understand, Jesus paid it all, all to him we owe. Sin left its crimson stain, but Jesus washed us white as snow. There's nothing more glorious in the Christian gospel than that. We are made right by his work on the cross, and you need to build your life around that reality because that's the only option we have. If this isn't true, you and I are destined for damnation. If Jesus' work on the cross was not sufficient for our salvation, we have no other options. Trust his finished work on the cross. Fill up. He passed through the heavens. We hold fast our confession. Verse 15. This high priest is not unable to sympathize with our weakness. He's every respect tempted as we are, yet without sin. If we're going to draw from his strength, we need to understand that this same Savior who paid the sacrifice, this holy Savior who paid the sacrifice for us, doesn't say, get away. He says, come near. And I know if, if you're like me, you, you know what it feels like sometimes to feel like your sin separates you in ways like, don't even look at me, God. But this is what you have to understand. If you're going to draw from his strength, you need to believe that Jesus welcomes you. Jesus bids you to draw near to him. The only thing that separates you from a close relationship to Jesus is you. 
if you want to know what it is to live in the power of the Spirit for the glory of Christ, the only thing that stops you from experiencing closeness to Jesus is you. Jesus welcomes you. One of the things I hate right now is cancel culture. And partly because there's a ton of stuff online that I've said that I'm sure will get me canceled twice over. But when you think about this, it's not just, in fact, I was reading this article that in the New York Times. Uh, one kid was saying, his 15-year-old student said, um, or young, I don't know how old he is actually. You can do something stupid when you're 15, uh, say one thing, and 10 years later, that shapes how people perceive you, she said. We all do cringy things and make dumb mistakes and whatever, but social media's existence has brought that into a place where people can take something you did back then and make it into who you are now. And I appreciate that because all of us are a work in progress. And maybe as an unbeliever, you said some things. I know uh, most recently, Joe Rogan is being, his, he's pulling episodes because he was using the N-word and I don't know what the context was, but he was saying things and he's like, oh, we should bring it down. People are calling him, let's cancel him. No, he should be deplatformed and all these other things. And, and I hate cancel culture because there's no redemption in this. She's right. If you say something today and 10 years later, someone pulls it up and it's like, oh, that's not right. If 10 years from now, we have a different cultural ethic, which is likely because there's no standards, and they see your words about something that you said 10 years ago, well, you better be careful. Your employer might, and it can happen. There's no redemption in cancel culture. Well, one of the things I love about Jesus is that Jesus is part of cancel culture, but not in the way that we understand not in the way that we typically understand it. Jesus canceled the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. See, the cancel culture that I'm about is canceling sin. And Jesus is all about saying, look, come to me, I will cancel your sin. You did something five years ago that you're ashamed of, great. Come to me, I'll cancel it. The effect and, and the consequence of your sin, canceled, done. You got guilt and shame to bring to me, great. Come to me so I can cancel that guilt and shame and help you to walk in newness of life. This is what it means to be in Christ. And tell me this isn't a message that your friends and family need to hear. I need to hear this. You need to hear this. Jesus is part of cancel culture in canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. Praise be to Jesus. That is an awesome message. Jesus welcomes you. And, and young person, please hear me on this. One of my concerns for the next several months as we finish out the school year together, I am desperate that we together come to this common realization that people need to hear this message more and more and more. As our world gets darker and more disturbed and more fearful of everything around them, you have a message that inoculates against fear. You have a message about a Savior that conquered sin, death, and everything else that we can think of that's wrong with our world. You have the message, it needs to be shared. Jesus welcomes us. He welcomes all who are repentant. He welcomes all who are uh, believing in him for righteousness. Tell me that's not the best news ever. Like, man, I don't know if you guys heard my class message or not message, my interview class. I, had some, I got some dirt. I got some dirt. And I don't want to put my wife on blast. She does too. <laughs> we got some dirt. If you knew everything that our lives were leading up to us becoming Christians, we could be, we could, Man, it would be a mess. And I'm thankful that that me is in the past. I'm no longer who I was because Christ has made me new. And that's true for you as well. If you're in Christ, it doesn't matter who you were or what you've been or what kind of sins you used to engage in. In Christ, you're a new creation and Jesus welcomes you. You're righteous. 
through his shed blood on the cross. That's why he says in verse 16, the preacher, he says, let us then with confidence, that confidence, think about this now, you can walk, okay, if you're the son or daughter of the president of the United States, it doesn't matter who he's with. You walk in, I'm, I'm guessing. I've never been the son of a president, but I'm guessing you just walk in there in the Oval Office and be like, Dad, I have an issue. I suspect. And if that dad cares about his family, he's going to want to be there for you, even if he's with someone important. And I kind of get the sense from the, the, the preacher here. Let us then with confidence draw near. It's not foolishness. It's not pride. It's not arrogance. It's confidence. Confident about what? Well, confident that I'm accepted. Confident that God wants to hear from me. Confident that I'm righteous in Christ. Therefore, let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may get what? Mercy and grace to help in time of need. Oh man, I love this. I love this. It's so invitational. It's calling you. It's beckoning you in. Draw strength from Christ. Now there's two words in here that we can sometimes uh, conflate to be one word. Mercy and grace. Mercy and grace. Let me quickly throw a few definitions your way, okay? Just, be, just so I can make sure we're on the same page here. Mercy. God's mercy describes him as, a perf as perfectly having deep compassion for creatures, people, such that he demonstrates benevolent goodness to those in a pitiable or miserable condition, even though they do not deserve it. So you can see that it kind of gets close to grace, but it's different. It has a different shade of nuance. God's not giving us what we deserve. He's giving us compassion for our fallenness, even though we're pitiable and miserable. God is showing us favor and kindness uh, because of our sin state or in response to it. However, God's grace, in contrast, describes God as perfectly bestowing favor on those who cannot merit it because they have forsaken it and are under the sentence of divine condemnation. So on the one hand, mercy kind of describes God's uh, feeling of compassion toward his creatures, people, and saying, I'm not going to give you what you deserve. Instead, I'm going to give you my compassion. And grace is more the positive angle of that, saying, I'm going to give you favor. I'm not just not giving you something. I'm giving you something good. Two sides of the same coin. They're different shades, but they describe something rich and beautiful. That when we draw near to God, we get help from him in terms of his mercy and his grace. And really the way I want you to think about this, when we think about mercy, I want you to think about God's forgiveness. You can't outsend God's grace. Jesus' grace is plentiful and sufficient. You can never outsend the grace of the Savior. Praise be to Jesus. Amen? No one cares about that. Okay. <laughs> you can't outsend them. But in addition to forgiveness, when you're feeling weak and weary, Jesus also gives you the faith to carry on. That's what I think this context means. When you talk about grace, grace to help in time of need, it's faith to keep pursuing him and keep fighting in the right direction. So if you're going to draw from Jesus' strength, you do that by trusting his finished work, believing that he welcomes you and therefore draws you in, and by receiving forgiveness and faith. Receiving it. You draw near to Jesus. He gives it generously. But you have to draw near. <laughs> One time I was driving with the pastor. I won't tell you who. But he's, a, he's busy. He's a busy pastor. And I, I was asking for time with him, and he was, he was just trying to help me with different things. And so I was just sitting in his passenger seat, and I look over to his dashboard, because I'm one of those people. I want to see what the gas is. I want to see what the, you know, half tank, right? It's less than half tank. I'm concerned. So I look at his gas tank, and I notice, I'm not ready to say anything about this, but the, the light's on. When the light's on, that means you're down to fumes. And so I'm looking at it, but he's just driving away. He's doing his thing. He's driving. And like, I'm trying to listen to what he's saying, but I can't, I can't focus because I'm looking at his gas tank saying, we're going to get stranded. I'm going to, I'm not. Uh, 
he had no concern whatsoever about this gas. I don't know if he always drives that way. I don't know how he doesn't get stranded all the time, but he, didn't, he paid no attention to the gas tank. Let me, let me just make a, a, an easy observation here. If you don't fill up your gas tank, your gas tank goes empty. That's how that works. That's how that works. Eventually, praise be to Jesus, he did pull over and fill up his gas tank, and I was thankful for that because if he had not done that, we would have been stranded, and that would have added a much greater time experience to my, my time with him. Christian, you need to draw from God's power. If you don't fill up on the grace and mercy of God, you're going to be weak. You're going to be unstable. You're going to be subject to be drawn away from Christ. Therefore, fill up. Draw from Jesus' strength. Okay, I spent more time on that first point than I wanted to, so please turn to the next chapter. Hebrews chapter 5, you'll notice I'm going to take you to the first six verses and then jump over 7 and 8 and go to 9 and 10, and hopefully this will make, soon, uh, make sense very soon. This next section, he wants you to draw near to Jesus. He's the only way. Jesus is uniquely qualified to be our mediator. And he's now going to talk a little bit about what, it, what the high priest is and what the high priest does. He's trying to showcase why Jesus is the great high priest. Here he is in verse, uh, chapter 5, verse 1. For every high priest chosen from, um, uh, is rather, for every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God. This is what I was explaining earlier. He does this to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. That was the role of the high priest. This high priest can deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. This high priest, unlike Jesus, has sin, and therefore when people come to him with sin, he's not going to beat them over the head and say, why are you such a sinner, you dummy? He recognizes he himself is also a sinner, and so he deals gently with those who are like him. Verse 3, because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. So the high priest had to sacrifice for himself and for others as well. Verse 4, the preacher says, no one takes this honor for himself. No one just says, hey, I want to be the high priest. Can I be the high priest? Put me as the high priest. He says, no, no one does this for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. And that's what I was just talking about a few moments ago. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And as he says also in another place, you are a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now I know some of you are going to get stuck on Melchizedek. We're going to talk about him very soon, but not tonight. So you're just going to have to rest on that for a second. Jump over to verses 9 and 10. We're going to see Melchizedek again, and he's going to talk about Jesus as the high priest and being made perfect. <laughs> Jesus was made perfect. He became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, all who obey his gospel, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Okay, here's what you need to know. Jesus was called by God to be high priest. Jesus did this in fulfillment of Scripture and in obedience to God the Father. Well, in, in what sense then was Jesus made perfect? How could this refer to Jesus? Well, if you think about this, we can't suspect that Jesus in any way uh, was added and made righteous. He was always righteous. He was the God-man encased in flesh. And so in what sense then was he made perfect? I, su I suspect here that what's happening in the context of Jesus' suffering, which I'll, I'll make clear in the, in the next point, Jesus suffered in an... Jesus' suffering was unique to him. Jesus never had to live to suffer and then die on the cross. Jesus never did that beforehand. Jesus allowing himself to suffer and die made him the perfect sacrifice and the perfect 
substitute for us. And this is what made him perfect. In other words, uh, what he did had to happen in time. Okay, think about this with me. Okay, this is a bit confusing. There was a point in time when Jesus was not the Savior. Not in the technical sense. He was always a Savior in God's mind. In God's plan of eternity, Jesus has always been planned from the beginning of time to be the sacrifice for our sins. But it didn't happen in, in no space and time. That happened in a real place in a real time. So there was a time in Jesus' life when he became Savior, which is why he says he, be, uh, he, he became the source, the eternal source of salvation for all who obey him. Before that, everyone trusted that what he would do would apply to their account. But there was a time and space, uh, what, was a time and place rather, where Jesus being made perfect, being made suitable to be Savior, became the eternal salvation to all who obey him. It had to happen in time and space. Referring to his suffering, Jesus was made perfect. There was nothing added to his character, nothing added to his being, but Jesus as a man had to go through suffering and death to be a suitable Savior for us. If you have any questions about that, your leaders can answer it completely. You're welcome, leaders. <laughs> The point here, again, is the preacher saying, why go to anything else? Why go to anyone else? Jesus alone offers eternal salvation. Jesus alone is the high priest God selected, which means there's no other options. There's no other mediators. Jesus alone is it. Point number two, accept no knockoff mediators. And there are plenty to choose from. I'm not talking about handbags. I'm not talking about wallets or purses or whatever. There are plenty of knockoff mediators out there. In fact, in many respects, anyone who's anyone who's trying to influence you is a knockoff mediator. Last year, Amazon said that they had to block 10 billion listings in their catalog because they were counterfeits. It's a problem for them. And they recognize that if they don't, if they don't control that, they're going to lose their business because if you can't trust them to sell the right product, then no one's going to want to go to them. What I want you to know is that there are counterfeits and knockoffs that are being sold to you in the global market, in the global exchange of ideas, in your classrooms, in your music, in your YouTube channels, in your TikTokers. There are counterfeits that are being sold to you, and, and you really probably don't notice it. I already mentioned this guy, but uh, the, the most popular uh, the most popular source of news right now is not Fox, it's not CNN, it's not MSNBC, it's none of the old media. Old media is gone. Joe Rogan has more streams and more influence than anyone else on the planet. Period. Which is phenomenal. I mean, it's, it's amazing. And all he has is a podcast, which I think he also streams on, on YouTube, but he has a podcast. He is a mediator. Why do you say that? Well, because he's got things that he wants you to believe like him. These guys, and, and he's not alone. I mean, you can think of this other guy who's, I mean, he's an older gentleman, but Jordan Peterson, he's becoming a very up-and-comer. He's getting really popular with people just a little bit older than you. He's also teaching you how to live the good life. He's teaching you how to be right in the creation. He's trying to give you his best wisdom and insight about how to interact with the world around you. He's a type of mediator. These guys may not use the term Messiah or mediator, but make no mistake, they're vying for your belief that what they are shelling, or what they're selling, rather, shelling out, is true. This is how to live in the world. This is how to live the good life. This is how to find salvation. You may not think of her in this way, but a kind of mediator or Messiah of sorts 
is a gal who you've heard her music before. Beautiful music, great vocals, interesting landscape sounds. I mean, amazing quality artistry. But what she sings is also meant to influence you about how to think about the world around you, how to interpret your friendships, how to think about relationships, how to think about everything. She's a mediator. She's a messiah. She's saying things that counteract what Jesus says. I mean, and we could go on and on about different kind of people. Some people, by their very personality and the things that the stunts that they pull, again, you may not think of them as mediators or knockoff mediators or messiahs, but they're influencing you. They want your attention. They want your followership. They want you to smash the like and smash the throw, whatever. They want you to do the things that they think are best for you. I did a little bit of scouring and I found a couple videos that I wanted to show you. They're both short, but just to make my point abundantly clear, here's a guy, I don't know him, seems like a nice guy. In fact, let me just say this, everyone I'm talking about, I'm sure they're nice people. You understand, I'm not, I'm not this angry hellfire brimstone preacher that's just telling you everyone is awful and they've got, they've got it out for you. I don't believe that. I think people genuinely are wanting to do the right thing, but the Bible says that what they're doing is fundamentally wrong, misguided. Listen to this guy about 45 seconds of how to find peace. Here you go. You are not who you were five years ago. You are not who you were five days ago. You are not who you were five hours ago or even five seconds ago. And none of those versions of you define who you are right now. And future you is entirely predicated on present you. You see, you are not your past. You are not your mind. You are not your body. You are not the person you've been conditioned to believe that you are. Who you truly are is simply the present awareness of this person. I'm not Andrew. I'm the present awareness of Andrew. Aware of him, his mind, his body, his emotions, his feelings. So you want to find yourself? You want to find peace? And be here, now, aware of this moment. Always. Okay, what? I'm sure that made sense to some people. For me, I'm thinking, Andrew, I have no idea what you just said, bro. Please go back to your room, close the door, take a nap, come back and try again. <laughs> He's not alone. Here's another guy. Uh, here's another guy that also wants you to acquire peace and happiness. And, and here's his one, two, three, four, five, six, five steps. Ready? Five steps, 45 seconds long. Here's another one. There are five things that you will need to do starting today if you really want to live your life in peace and happiness. Number one, stop worrying about what's going to happen in the future. You have no control over that. Number two, stop living in the past. What's done is done. You have to move forward. Number three, stop overthinking every little thing that happens in your life. Number four, stop trying to please everyone around you. Remember, it is not your responsibility to please others. Everyone is responsible for their own emotions. Number five, Start believing in yourself and do not allow your inner critic to take a hold of you. Remember, you are much stronger than you think, so stop doubting your abilities. Knockoff mediators. Now, here, here's, here's the thing. His is a little more tricky because at least his makes sense. And you have to start saying, okay, well, stop worrying. Okay, well, I guess, yeah, that would lead to my happiness and my peace. Stop worrying why. I mean, what's this guy's name? Uh, why, successful life coach? <laughs> why stop worrying? On what basis can you give me any assurance 
that worry is not the most reasonable response, given the fact that we live in a world of random beneficial mutation, and we're just all accidents that are just waiting for our own demise. Stop worrying on what basis, successful life coach. How about this one? He said, stop living in the past. He's absolving you of your sin. Stop living in your past mistakes. Stop thinking about the things that you used to do. You're no longer that person. On what basis can you forgive me of my sin, successful life coach? What if I've done some really awful things? You should just move on. How about this one? Um, stop trying to please others. Okay, well, that sounds almost quasi-Christian, I suppose. Stop trying to please others based on what? Who are you to tell me that's what's going to lead to my happiness? And furthermore, Scripture would fundamentally disagree with that. Paul said, I, I try to please everyone in what I do. Now, he wasn't a people pleaser. He was a God pleaser, but he did that by loving people well and pleasing them and living for their glory and for their good. All this to say, I, I wanted to point this out to you because it it's subtle, it's sneaky. He, he's a, he is a knockoff mediator. You have a lot of knockoff mediators, a lot of knockoff messiahs who are vying for your attention and your belief. They want you to believe what they believe. And let me just point out to you, in contrast to Jesus, in contrast to Jesus, really quickly here, I'm going to go through these points quick so I can get to this next point, my last point. Knockoff mediators offer no sacrifices that please God. Okay, no sacrifices that please God. In chapter 5, verse 1, uh, the high priest is chosen from God in order to offer sacrifices that will please him and appease his wrath and his anger. These knockoff mediators can do nothing of the sort because, first of all, they don't even acknowledge Jesus as being, uh, as being a necessary component of their worldview. They build religion out of thin air. Remember how I talked about at the beginning of the sermon, nuns, people that have no religious affiliation? I don't know if these guys fill that category, but it might be likely given what they're saying because they're just building philosophies out of nothing. They have nothing to please God with. Let's keep going. In contradistinction to Jesus, these knockoff mediators possess no true humility or compassion. Now, this one I had to think about how to say this because I, I know they both sound like nice people. And all the people that I've mentioned, I'm sure, are nice and they're, they're, they're kind in various ways. But to have true humility and compassion would require you to acknowledge that you yourself are a sinner before a holy God and you have nothing to offer anyone save for the grace of God through Christ. That would be true humility and true compassion. Otherwise, to suggest that you, you know how other people should live is the height of arrogance. Oh, I can tell you how to live a peaceful life. I can tell you how to do it right. I know better. Follow me. Well, I don't think so, person. I don't think so, successful life coach. They possess no true humility or compassion. Let's keep going. They also platform themselves into the spotlight. This is kind of goes to the, to the last one, but I wanted to make a point here about how the preacher in Hebrew says the person who becomes high priest doesn't, doesn't run for office. He's not doing a campaign. He's not doing you know, Google ads. He's not trying to put promotions on Insta to say, hey, vote for me to be next high priest. No, that office is chosen by God and God himself and God alone. And God has chosen his mediator and his Messiah, and that is Jesus and Jesus Christ. Now, the problem with influencers or anyone that you're following. And I, and I use the term influencer in a generic sense. I'm not talking about capital I influencer, someone who's on Instagram, who's that's their job. They're trying to make money by being an influencer. Music, movie stars, anything else in between. Anyone who's vying for your followership. These people tend to put themselves in the spotlight, boasting themselves and how great they are and why you should follow them without ever giving or acknowledging God himself has to do the work in them and through them for, for them to be of any value whatsoever. This is how you identify a knockoff mediator. Last, knockoff mediators fail to give followers true and lasting salvation. Now, let me just say this in full disclosure. Influencers 
sometimes do really good things for people. They say things that are really helpful. You know, the, the, the people that have written books about self-help and how to you know, build successful habits and, and how to have conversations with people in social settings. And I mean, they, they have good things to say and we thank God for that. But the problem is not that they have good things to say and they don't give credit to God. The problem is that they're trying to direct you in a path that has no end game. There's no positive end of it because you're never going to be able to find enough. You're never going to be fully satisfied. And then ultimately, you're never going to find satisfaction. You could be the best person in the world, the most moral, the most wealthy, the most philanthropic. You could have everything. Philanthropic. That's how to say that word. Philanthropic. Um, You could have everything you ever needed in this life. And if you're not right with Christ, you have nothing. Jesus said, was it, well, what does it profit a man or a woman to gain everything that this world has to offer and yet forfeits the only thing that matters, your soul? That's called winning and ultimately losing. As Jim Elliott would say, he who uh, loses... He, Jim Elliott said some really good things in the past <laughs> and we're going to acknowledge that. <laughs> I'll, it'll come back to me. Knockoff mediators aren't pointing you to Jesus, okay? You need to make sure that in your mind and in your heart, you are guarding this sacred territory called influence in your heart. When you watch these people on Instagram or whatever, whatever your platform is, or you listen to their music, you must guard your heart and make sure they're not trying to mediate your relationship to God. Say, no, this is really the good life. If you want to be truly satisfied, you need to have this kind of beauty standard. If you really want to be, uh, you know, successful as a guy, you need to have this kind of resume. Jesus is your only mediator. Don't fall for it. Jesus is made perfect. He became the source of eternal salvation. Jesus gained it. You can't lose it. Thank you, Dave. No, that wasn't Dave. Sorry. That was Joseph. Why 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 are my notifications on? I don't know. I (laughs) My apologies. <laughs> totally distracted. Okay. Um, where was I? This is a good verse. <laughs> should believe it. Okay. Jesus is a great high priest. Um, and here, here's the thing. Remember, I told you the high priest, his job was to intervene, right? He uh, serves on behalf of the people, representing the people to God. And then God would send him as, a, you know, the representative of the people. He was to be a cut above the rest. The high priest had different standards. He was supposed to be uh, righteous. He was supposed to be the kind of guy that people could look up to and say, ah, I want to follow the high priest and do what he does. Jesus does the same. He offers us an example by his life for what it looks like to be a faithful high priest. And one particular area that I love and I wanted to, sm- I wanted to spend one point talking about this aspect of his high priesthood. Verses 7 through 8. Take a look with me. Verses 7 through 8. One aspect of Jesus' high priesthood that I think this is worth emulation in every way possible. Verse 7 and 8 in chapter 5. In the days of his flesh, before he died, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications. How? Well, he did it with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And get this, he was heard because of his reverence. Not because he was the son of God. That he was, but he wasn't pulling the son of God card. He was heard because he was a reverent, submissive, humble follower. Verse 8, although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. This goes back to the last passage that I was pointing out to you. Jesus um, 
obeyed the Father to the point of death. That was a new experience for him. He'd never experienced that before. And so what's happening here is that you're seeing Jesus in his full humanity live his life out in perfect obedience to the Father with reverence and in prayerful submission to, to God. This is easy. Point number three, follow the example Jesus modeled. As our great high priest, we can look at him and see how he dealt with one of the most difficult experiences of his life, his sacrifice on the cross, and say, wow, let me follow that example. Specifically, modeling ourselves after his prayer life. When I think about models in my life, one of my favorite models that I, I talked about this last Sunday at, at our class interview uh, was a man by the name of Jack Angel. This man uh, met me as a young man. That's him on the right. Yeah, right. Uh, that's Jack Angel. He just turned 90 years old in November. I met him, or he met me, uh, when he was in his 70s. And at that point, I thought, he's an old fart. What can he teach me? I don't know what I'm going to learn from this guy. But he was kind, and he was warm, and so I, I got to know him. And over the course of time, this man became increasingly and increasingly dear to me. His life modeled to me what it looked like to be a godly man. And looking back, I mean, I didn't realize what was happening, but I was seeing in him. I mean, he was, he's not a silly guy. He's a really cool dude, though. You know, one of the coolest old guys you ever met. Strong as an ox. His handshake could kind of break your hand. Even when I was in this, the, the prime of my youth, like that guy would just be super strong, super strong. I remember one occasion. There's a few occasions that I remember him vividly in the way that he modeled to me. But one occasion, uh, we went on this camping trip. And um, he was an early bird because he's old. So he woke up really early. And I got up and, and I saw him and he was sitting in his chair with his banjo next to him. He played banjo phenomenally. Um, he had his banjo next to him and he was reading his Bible. It was early in the morning. And so I said, good morning. Um, good morning, Mr. Angel. I forget what I said, but he ignored me. And I'm like, I said it louder because I mean, he must not have heard me. Good morning, Mr. Angel. And I was goofing off and just, and then he's just still sitting there. And I'm like, man, he's really old. His, his hearing's just going and he doesn't hear poor guy. And as I get closer to him, I say, <laughs> one of those things where I'm like, hello. <laughs> and he ignored me. Poor dense young Rod didn't get it, but I, I it eventually got it. He was reading his Bible. And for him, that sacred time warranted no interruption from anybody. Even one of the guys that he was leading in this camp out. He ignored me because he, he wanted to show me by his example and by his modeling that this was the most important time of his day and nothing would stop him from that, not even my calling out to him. And so I quietly just backed up and, <laughs> and that, that shaped me. That shaped me. That, that, that little exchange shaped me in ways that I could tell you, today that still reverberates in my life and in my ministry. And just, I just, I'm, I'm profoundly grateful for that. These kind of models that we have in our lives, uh, really, when we see those things, we're looking at a re replication, however faint, of Jesus. When you see good models, we're looking at Jesus. And essentially, Jesus ought to be the one that we take everything as much as we can from and say, I want to model my life after Jesus. And if we can see Jesus in different people, like Jack Angel or whoever else it is in your life, great, go for that. But especially Jesus. Let me show you again what it looks like to model yourself after Jesus, specifically in his prayer life. In fact, I want you to have prayer abs. I want to have prayer six-pack. Ready? Prayer abs. Starting with number one, pray authentically. 
Jesus prayed with loud cries and tears. Jesus didn't hold back from the Father. He begged him, Father, if there's any way that we could skip this whole wrath on the cross thing, dying in an ignoble death, let's skip that. Let's not do that. Jesus was real in his prayer time. You want a good prayer life? You want prayer abs? Pray real. Be authentic. Sometimes we can get so stale and stoic in our prayers, and it's like no wonder you're bored because you're not real. Pray authentically, modeling yourself after Jesus. Jesus didn't only uh, have loud cries and tears. He also went to him who was able to save him from death. Jesus knew God, his Father, could deliver him from that situation. And so Jesus asked a bold prayer. He said, please, let's not do this. Let's find a different way to save mankind. You ought to pray boldly like Jesus did. Pray something that you know only God can answer and trust that he can do the thing. This is how Jesus mediates for us. He's interceding for us and himself at this point, but he's interceding, showing us what it looks like to pray authentically, to pray boldly. And one more, let me give this to you. I highlighted this when I was explaining it. Jesus was heard because of his reverence. He didn't pull out his son of God card. He submitted himself to the father's leadership. He prayed authentically. He prayed boldly. He prayed submissively. You want prayer six-pack abs? Authentic, bold, submissive. Jesus eventually said, not my will, but your will be done. Whatever you want to do, Father, I'm willing to do that. This is our great high priest. Let us follow in his footsteps. You know the Dalai Lama? <clears throat> Tibetan Buddhism. That's, that's the background for this guy. He's the leader. He's the face of Tibetan Buddhism. He says a lot of things. Um, and he has a lot of influence, even, even today. None of us are particularly Buddhist, but Buddhism and Eastern religion as a, in general has kind of grown in popularity as people begin to explore the cafeteria of offerings for religion. And because, you know, meditation, specifically transcendental meditation, um, is really popular today, people start getting and dabbling into things like Buddhism. There's another guy who's not the same guy, but this guy right here. Um, his name is Deepak Chopra. He is a New Age mystic teacher. Bizarre teaching. But Deepak interviewed the Dalai Lama, and one of the things that the Dalai Lama said stuck with him, Deepak, and here's what he said that was helpful to him. He said, The most inspiring thing the Dalai Lama ever told me was to ignore all organized fates and keep to the road of higher consciousness. Quote, Without relying on religion, we look to common sense. We look to common experience and the findings of science for understanding. Ignore religion, be commonsensical, look for common experiences, yada, yada, yada. This is the most important thing that impressed Deepak Chopra. The Dalai Lama taught that. And, and I, I bring this up as an example, again, just to show you the world around you continues to crumble without any sense of hope or help. Like someone throw this guy a lifeline because where does that lead? Well, what is that? Let's just deal. Okay, first of all, what is common sense? Someone define that. Is common sense really all that common? <laughs> and, and by the way, when you say organized faith, does that include Buddhism? This sounds like hotcakes. This is like super popular. I mean, all that to say, here's what Jesus says. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. 
This is the message we need. This is what we need to communicate. And this is why Jesus is better. There are no real alternatives. Draw near to God through him. Let's pray.